0: Welcome to the last panel uh, of this conference, I guess you could call it. I'm, I'm Jennifer, I work at Ustrikets Politiska Institute at their program for global security and GPS, politics and politics. <laughs> Sorry, I was like, I'm, I'd had peace in my head because we've been talking so much about peace. Uh, and our last panel is gonna be about memory activism has a little bit of a little bit of everything almost so we have some some feminist peace building some art so kind of following up on on the last panel and then we also have digital commemoration Uh, so i'm going to present our speakers uh, briefly and then i'm going to give you all maybe three to five minutes to just give some introductions of yourselves your research your organization whatever you you feel like uh, and then I'm going to ask you some questions. We'll have a discussion. Feel free to ask each other questions or, or jump in. And then I'll open up to the audience. Uh, okay, so we have sorry, I have my cheat card so I don't get, get anything wrong here. <laughs> we have uh, first Pietra Tetterman Andorf. She's the General Secretary for Quina Tilquina Foundation, uh, which promotes women's rights in conflict affected areas. And you work with, I uh, heard you say yesterday, I think 150 partners in uh, in different countries uh, in the MENA region sub-saharan africa uh, europe and the south Caucasus. so they work on gender-based violence uh, prevention and economic empowerment and and yeah they do great stuff and then we have rana mitri here <laughs> uh, she works for the archiving project creative memory of the syrian revolution and it's a project that uh, writes records and collects stories of the syrian people and they have a really amazing website so with huge archive that you can check out. And then here we have Orly Friedman, and she's an associate professor at the Faculty of Media and Communications at, I'm sorry if I don't pronounce this right, Singedunum Singedunum University, great. (laughs) And her research focuses on on critical peace and conflict studies, memory politics, and digital memory activism. So uh, why don't we we start with you, Petra, if you wanna have uh, maybe three to five minutes. Just introduce yourself. Thank you very much. It's oh. It's on. Yeah. It's up oh, like that. It's Got it
1: Hello? No? Yes? Yes. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> There's something about technique that's just magical <laughs> or not magical, but it's always there. So thank you for that introduction. And The Kvina till Foundation, we were founded uh, next year, it's going to be 30 years ago, and actually one of the founders is sitting here in the audience, Eva Selén, senior uh, advisor at Kvina till And it was the women's movement and the Swedish peace movement that came together when the reports about uh, what was happening in the Balkans, the war in former Yugoslavia came to Sweden and basically said, no, we can't have this. It's not possible that there sh- this should be rape camps in Europe in the 1990s. And since then, we have grown. So, like you said, we are now working in 20 countries, conflict-affected countries, with over 150 women's rights organizations. And that is usually how I would introduce Kvinna to Kvinna as a women's rights organization. But I would say at our core, uh, we are definitely a peace building organization. And many of our partners work with peace building in so many different ways. And for us and for our partners, it's about addressing the root causes of violent conflicts and including the same triggers and tensions that leads to cycles of conflict while simultaneously working for gender equality. And we call that feminist peace. And these are of course, it's obvious, very highly complex issues, but I think one of the things that we have uh, that's very obvious, I think, for all kind of international relations and work in development, uh, aid, etc., is that what's key is the local ownership. And that is the model that we're working on. We don't have any of our own programs in any of the countries where we are. We support the women's rights organizations. And many of our partners have been very successful in presenting uh, alternative and newest counter narratives to the very often militaristic and very patriarchal narratives that exist in their uh, countries. And I think that is one of the keys uh, to having a successful peace building and counter narrative. And we have several examples in Lebanon. Uh, we have partners that do trainings on feminist oral history. In Kosovo, Serbia, it's a joint project where they have Feminist Spring School. But the one example I would like to give before my introductory minutes are over is from. Bosnia-Herzegovina, and that's an initiative called Peace with a Woman's Face, and it was initiated by 12 organizations across the country in Bosnia-Herzegovina, and it was developed as a movement uh, aiming to make all Bosnian women's experience more visible, their experience from the war, regardless if it was as victims or as actors in working for Peace Builder. And as it happens, they have decided that the 8th of December, today, is the day, uh, they have established this as a memorial day of the women who were killed in the wars in Bosnia-Herzegovina. And a symbol for these days are white flowers. So if you would Google, of Peace with a Woman's Face. You would, among other things, see a short film on YouTube where they are handing out white roses uh, on different sites in Bosnia-Herzegovina. So we thought that it was an excellent example that we all here today in this conference can also be a part uh, of that remembrance, doing that. So I think I will stop there for now.
0: Thank you. That's perfect.
2: Yeah, you can continue. Go ahead. I'm going to show the website on the screen yeah, so great. I can explain okay. better. Let's see Sophie. Who wants to
3: work with us? You see my be beautiful desktop.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there we go. So it's <coughs> A
3: split screen. Uh-huh.
2: Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. okay, so uh, my name is Rana Mitri. I'm actually Lebanese, but I work uh, with this project. Uh, the documents and archives, uh, all the artistic and non-violent productions that were made since 2011, since the start of the Syrian revolution, and throughout the war now. So uh, the website uh, has 12 categories that are here. You can browse through the categories. Uh, These are also the posts that we are documenting. Um, Based on the archives, like the archives are the main project, but we also have sub-projects. I'm gonna show you just uh, quickly just a couple of them. So we have this map. And in it you can choose any location uh, in Syria that you'd like and it would show the artworks um, documented that were made in a specific area. Um, and we also have a chronology that is split into three parts. Each part has its title, like um, three uh, phases that happened uh, in Syria, and we have. Sorry. So we have major events that happened that are down here on the timeline. We have a narrative that we wrote uh, as a team, and we mention all the sources uh, that uh, we based our narrative on. And each event is also accompanied by an artwork that is related to the event that happened. So it's always uh, based on art, or to show how the art was used to um, commemorate or to represent a certain event uh, throughout the Syrian revolution. And we also have, I think we're gonna talk about this later, Idlib Walls in this project. We document all the graffiti and murals that we were able to find online mainly uh, in uh, the governorate of Idlib. So throughout the years, of course. And uh, we will talk in detail uh, about this later, but this was like a huge, um, if we can say surprise in the Syrian revolution, like the rise of graffiti and murals uh, (coughs) to um, represent what was going on. Um, so we also have, as you can see in the menu, uh, I'm gonna show it actually because this is our most recent project. It's about the detainees and the uh, forcibly disappeared uh, people. And we also document all the art that was created around this subject, like um, from paintings, uh, reports, uh, infographics. And of course with everything that we document we have the title, the author, the category, a description, um and of course when it was created, when we archived it, the source, links to the source, and I mean all the, the details to do justice to the documentation. Uh the website is gonna be renewed soon, so this is gonna be an older version. In case you visited and you faced some bugs, it's because (laughs) we're doing some work on the data and development, but it should be working properly. Okay, thank you so much.
4: Okay, so uh, hi everyone. Uh, First, just to say again, uh, thank you very much for the invitation to join you and also to congratulate the four who started yesterday morning with your opening panel for completing your project and also kind of being inclusive uh, in the closing of it in having more of us join you. So I thought we are supposed to say something about our own So I don't have an organization to present. I am here probably more to speak about my own uh, work and research, so I can say a few words about that and I think it will come up in the the questions that we will be asked. Uh, So I'm based in uh, Belgrade at the Faculty of Media and Communications where I teach in politics department, Uh, My main field of studies is peace and conflict studies Uh, and from that angle I come to memory studies And so in my recent work, I've been writing extensively about memory activism and If you follow activism or analyze it at some point say about a decade ago the digital sphere became very vivid so while many people came to digital memory studies from media studies, uh, that was not my path, it just kind of was empirical evidence that kept coming up and it was really needed to work with. Um, I'm always interested in peace studies or conflict studies to hear people's background, what brought them to the field from their own Uh, upbringings and life experience and I like to ask the same question when we speak about memory studies what is the what brings us to memory studies or what are the memory scapes that we come from in our mnemonic upbringing so I can say about my own um, I grew up actually in the 1970s and 80s in Tel Aviv in Israel uh, where um, the whole issue of our past was concealed in a sense of the 1948 Palestinian Nakba was not something we knew about until much later, let's say, in the 1990s. And very much in the 90s, also kind of the beginning of uh, alternative scene, alternative activism, uh, alternative commemorations of the Nakba was something I was part of in in my activism hat, but also as a student. And then uh, later on, to my uh, graduate research, my uh, dissertation work, I actually shifted my memoryscapes <laughs> to another place, to uh, the Southeast Europe and the post-Yugoslav space. And at that time, it was about the, uh, the emerging uh, contestations of the wars of the breakup of Yugoslavia, the 1990s. And so, in both cases, denial was something that. I was uh, uh, very interested in uh, to study and to understand, but also to see how uh, we engage with politics of denial. So I'll, this will be my path to memory activism, which you, I will speak about a little more later.
0: Great, thank you. You can actually hang on to the mic because I, I want to direct my first question to you, okay. and it is about uh, it's about memory activism because I think a lot of things we've heard here during the conference kind of. Are manifestations of memory activism, but if we bring it back to, if we bring it back to the kind of the core of the concept, how can we understand memory activism? Like yeah. what, and also, your work uh, in kind of the digital aspect—you talk about hashtag memory activism. Uh, if you could talk a bit about that and how that relates to to the work of memory activism overall? Okay. I'm sorry, I I understand it's a huge question. Yeah, so (laughs) that's,
4: we combine two questions to one, so I'll, with your permission, I'll take uh, a little bit uh, just to explain and i also maybe use some uh, visuals. Uh, So I think, to the, f- the field of studying memory and activism is definitely growing and the idea actually that memory and its construction involves labor is hardly new, right? Uh, I'm thinking of uh, works like uh, Elizabeth Jellin's work from uh, 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 sort of post-dictatorship Latin America when in her analysis she works with the social disputes over memories. Um, this has been written two decades ago already, maybe even a little bit more. And so she speaks about the human beings who labor on and with memories of the past. And that was something, uh, an idea that really intrigued me. And uh, I wanted to kind of uh, see how, uh, what what else, how can we develop it farther theoretically as well as empirically. Memory activism, I approach as a, str- as a strand of uh, peace activism, uh, anti-denial activism in the form of like Stanley Cohen and his thinking about the typologies of denial. Uh, But also initially uh, it in some places, as I show in Serbia, emerged from anti-war activism. It was the women in black as anti-war activists and other circles who find themselves profoundly shifting to memory activism after the wars were over and so kind of I try to uh, trace this um, uh, shift. Memory activism nowadays is a very broad wide scope, right? So we have um, also growing body of literature about uh, the far right and how it engages with memory and activism. I'm, however, interested in that strand when it kind of attempts to push forward, promote peace, right? Um, so, in that sense, memory activism for me is uh, the study of the what is off the channels of the state, right? The, so, there's the hegemonic memory politics that was part of the discussion yesterday, and I'm very interested in the alternative and uh, counter memories. Um, and just to, to speak about Some of my main ideas, as I try to put them in my more recent work, um, memory activism, I try to trace as the study of mnemonic practices. And I trace those through engagement with what uh, the analysis of alternative commemorative events and alternative calendars. So if you think of the state calendar as placing the hegemonic memories in our rituals and practices and the cycle of our remembrance, I'm actually interested in everything that is not on that state calendar or what emerged, for example, in the region of the former Yugoslavia as civic alternative calendar. I also see memory activism as a way to think about commemorative solidarity, so practices that allow acknowledgment, but also camaraderie, and uh, very much alternative venues to what we see as dominant in many societies after conflict, which is politics of victimization, right, so how to go beyond that. And in that sense, for me, memory activism is a very vibrant arena to study political struggles, but also civic activism, agency, and very much also empathy, like in even hope. And I place hope in a sense of we speak more about politics of disappointment, but how can we search for politics of hope within activism? So this is some of the thoughts about memory activism, about the digital, as I said, and one of the things I try to put forward is to think about what I call hashtag memory activism. So, if we can, maybe I'll, I'll just show. Shall I? It's still the same question, right? I'm, I'm yeah, getting no, to no, the go digital. It's, go a ahead. <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> it's a little bit long, but um, so just to say, uh, we can have the, the next slide. I, uh, just to say a few words about the digital, uh, uh, the hashtag, um can have the next one. The hashtag memory activism I think of as a frame. And we can speak maybe later about hashtags and as a, as a, in the analysis of hashtag activism and hashtag memory activism and hashtag as a new site for field, like it's a place where we do field work, right? <laughs> it's empirical uh, research. But hashtag uh, also can be thought in the context of memory as a mnemonic practice. Uh, I I take a number of hashtags and I think of them as case studies, right? And so uh, if we analyze those as case studies, we can search for uh, the genealogies of the hashtags and also what they tell us about memory politics or even about the administration of memory. It's also a mnemonic tactic that I see as like how activists push forward certain Sec- certain claims, mnemonic claims, uh, if we see the next slide, I'll just show you snapshots of that. One of the first hashtags I studied was the White Armband Day, which was a uh, kind of an online transnational memory activism and uh, from uh, an event that was banned in Priedor to commemorate the 20th anniversary of certain war crimes that were uh, um, committed there in 2012 in Bosnia-Herzegovina and the, in the last panel there was a talk about Omarska. This was a place from which many people were ended up in a concentration camp. So the, the, when the event was banned, what they did was they went online, right, as a, as a tactic. So for me, hashtag memory activism is never meant to stay online. It always means to circulate back to reality on the ground, and that's what we saw in Bosnia-Herzegovina, sorry, in the next, uh, the last slide, what they did is they called people to post images of themselves with the white armband, uh, which symbolizes uh, some of the practices of the war crimes committed in this region, but eventually it circulates back to Priedor, when people are uh, gathering in the street uh, because I carry I as a teacher was an action to kind of which it was generated first online because the event was banned. So this is one type of memory activism that we can see, uh, another one was an event that was actually uh, supposed to commemorate the 20th anniversary of Srebrenica in Belgrade and uh, the idea was to call people through the hashtag of 7,000 to commemorate uh, uh, approximately the number of, that of people at that time who were buried, identified and buried in Patochari. Uh, the event was banned, uh, but continued to have life again through social uh, uh, networks, calling people to change their own uh, images two graffiti in uh, the street that is still there, two eventually kind of the commemoration, like a band commemoration, so it became like a overnight uh, guerrilla commemorative event, even though it was banned. So again, this uh, circulation. um, uh, Another hashtag as an example is uh, not our heroes, which uh, happened after the closure of the ICTY when uh, convicted war criminals began to go home and being received as war heroes, right? And uh, the younger generation of activists say, this is not our heroes, right? Uh, If you show the next slide, they kind of, This is a mistake. (laughs) This is uh, in Zagreb, uh, uh, Sarajevo, Pristina, uh, Podgorica in Belgrade. They're standing with the same hashtag. And again, it's it's the action that happens in the street and the way it comes online through digital memory activism. This also has uh, to do with another uh, contestation of the the murals that appeared in Belgrade celebrate war heroes, right? And this is uh, the contestation of the past. can speak about it a little bit more. And just the last one to to also feature uh, another hashtag that I studied, which is not in the post yugoslav space. It has to do, again, with the denial of the Nakba, or the uh, erasure of the Nakba, but this is like uh, when memory activists uh, use hashtags uh, as advocacy tools, right? And this is a campaign in the um, 2018 anniversary of the Nakba Day to say uh, my Nakba story and put images and stories of pre-1948 Palestinian life in urban spaces in today's Israel, right? So, um, yet you can show also the next slide. Um, Yeah, so this is a a little bit uh, 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 snapshots into the the digital sphere and, and the way the hashtag is used as a tactic and, and a claim and another space too for activism.
0: Great, thank you. It's very interesting to see that how it interacts with the digital sphere and then also in, in person. It just like feeds off each other. Um, great, so uh, you mentioned memory activism as being kind of challenging the dominant narrative and often the dominant narrative is is creates victims so I want to bring it back to, to Pietra and talk about cleaneth Kvinna, because you you support um, feminist peace works so I'm jumping between my questions here mm-hmm. uh, and uh, we often see in post conflict settings that women get labeled as as victims and that tends to kind of reduce uh, them to just one one single thing and, and takes away their voice um, I was just gonna ask you what the consequences of this are, but then I, I just mentioned some. <laughs> but you're welcome to kind of elaborate. Uh, but so what can the broader consequences of, of labeling women as victims in the dominant narrative be? And also, uh, how how can we work and how do you work with including the the complexities of female experiences in war?
1: Well, I think the consequences are quite Obvious, and it's been mentioned, you know, from, and it really, I was going to say then, when marginalized groups don't have their voices heard, but women is not a marginalized group. They actually consist of the majority of the people on the planet. Uh, But I think if just, you know, why does this? keep happening, you know, that that women are, that their stories aren't told. And it's not just, I think it's important before we, you know, because now we talk in relation to peace. So, you know, we talk about violent conflict and war, but I think in general, you know, <laughs> there's patriarchy in all of its forms in all countries around the world and gender inequality, and that is the basic root cause of why women and other uh, groups' stories aren't being heard in the same way. And I just wanted, because yesterday when I was sitting here listening, this uh, statistic came up in my head. You know, it's, it's not just in conflict and in relation. I remembered maybe some of you here from the Swedish context in 2015, the major newspaper in Sweden, one of the major Dagens Nyheter news of the day, they made a study and looked into uh, history books for high school students. I don't know if any of you remember this, but this statistic just stuck in my head. So th- they looked at the major publishing houses, and in the history book for eighth grader, uh, in general, there were only the people who were named in the history books. There were only 13% of them were women. But in this one particular history book for eighth grader, there were more Nazis who were named by name than women. There were 31 Nazis. Uh, and 21 women. And then they had counted Eva Braun, Hitler's wife, as a woman. Only, <laughs> I guess, to get to make the statistic look better. And that has just, this was 2015, so it's quite a few years ago, but it has just kind of stuck in my head, so I had to Google it. I'm like, did I dream that? And then I was like, no. So I think it's also important to put the context. Sweden has supposedly been at peace, even though Um, really made me rethink that this morning when I heard your testimony about what's going on in the Sami population, which of course we knew, but it's good remembrance. So I think, just wanting to say that, that it's not unique for conflict-affected countries that women are, and we support women's rights organization, and uh, very, very many of them, probably a majority, identify mm, as feminists. In telling your story, if that is going against the norm, it's really hard, uh, and it takes a lot of courage. And I think that you know you're all uh, aware of that. And I think that the opposition—I mean, of course, it comes from you know governments, uh, and it's it come, but it can also come from the community and from families. If women are usually classified as non-actors, non-political actors, when you step out of that comfort zone or out of that zone and become a political actor then you are challenging something you're challenging power and we have for the last 10 years done studies looking at the kind of hate and threats and actually you know death threats that women human rights defenders (laughs) receive and we see that there's a a special kind of threat and hate for women who work where it's more more active conflicts because then you're also you're not being patriotic you're not being supportive with your country who or the, you're part of your country that's really fighting for something, and I think that's a really important thing that we at Kvinna de Kvina and other international women's rights organizations, peace organizations can do, is to be present and be that bouncing board and be that support, and I have no idea now if I answered your question or not, no, I just kind no. of rambled on.
0: <laughs> no, you it do, it's very interesting, I think, I think in the, I think it was a panel about Ukraine yesterday, they mentioned that in conflict situations mm. it is very hard to challenge a dominant narrative, because you have to...
1: Yeah, and I think for women it's always very challenging, and uh, not to drag back, but I mean, come on, what happened this summer with the murder uh, in the midst of Almedalen, which is a political week where civil society and organizations and companies meet, and this woman was stabbed to death uh, in the middle of the street, and the man had also pinpointed one of our political party leaders, a woman. Uh, it's always challenging for women uh, to be actors and step out of the stereotypes that women are often very faced and very often in conflict that relates to women being victims.
0: Great, thank you. Yeah. Uh, okay, so I um, want to change the topic a bit and move, move to you, Rana. So you showed us your your website. Oh yeah, you can have yeah, the mic there. Um, it's very impressive. And you mentioned the, the graffiti and I did want to talk a bit about the, <laughs> the graffiti because I guess you can say that that's big catalyst in this in the syrian uh, conflict yeah, exactly yeah uh, so i i wanted to to talk about why you think i mean this is also a huge question <laughs> there's no right answer but why do you think that murals came to play such an important role in the co- syrian conflict um
2: first of like the what triggered everything in uh, february 2011 was uh, scribbles that uh, school children wrote on uh, their school wall in Daraa. And it was uh, inspired by the um, Arab Spring that was happening in Tunisia and Egypt and so on. And they wrote uh, the famous uh, sentence uh, down with the regime. Uh, And uh, it's your turn now, doctor. Doctor meaning Bashar al-Assad. Uh, and there were 14, 13, 15 year old uh, students who uh, were uh, then kidnapped, tortured, and killed because they dared to write that. And after that, the, appri- the uprising began and several cities started uh, started showing solidarity. So this graffiti was like the starting point. And um, it started spreading in other uh, areas and other uh, cities, but also, we need to remember that uh, graffiti is a street art and the uh, revolution was born in the street. And <coughs> it's something that is very accessible. It's there for everyone to see. It's not, you don't have to go to a museum or to watch a play or whatever. It's just for the people and it's very expressive. So uh, it was mainly used in Idlib, uh, in Saraqib, which is a city in Idlib, in Binish as well, uh, Khan Shaykhun, etc. And it it started by expressing hope, uh, so everyone can see that they have hope in this uh, revolution. Uh, it also reminded people of the what the revolution uh, stood for, the, the values of the revolution, dignity, freedom, um, uh, like, uh, like freedom of expression, uh, everything. And you can see throughout the revolution, it started then showing solidarity with all the sieges that were happening, the massacres, uh, and then it turned into anger. And then it turned into kind of loss of hope. And the the people who were spraying on these walls were subject to snipers. Uh, they were detained, they were tortured, they were killed. Some of them had to escape. Um, Some of them lived in areas where they didn't have any spray spray paint anymore, so there's actually a graffiti that says we are almost out of spray paint. (laughs) Because they did not have any access to to material anymore. Um, But uh, it was a huge thing and the regime, uh, other than killing or arresting the people who were, who were spraying on the walls, it was also destroying the walls by bombing these areas. It was also like the supporters of the regime were spraying over um, uh, the, the, the slogans of the people, the, their own slogans like um, uh, we want Bashar or we will burn the country or just uh, spraying black over murals. Um, so it's it's very interesting it's interesting to see how these things evolved and how even when the regime was destroying uh, their cities people were still painting on destroyed uh, walls so um and it's very important to document these because they were being destroyed or sprayed uh, over. So the the collection that we were able to get and document is actually very big and I really uh, advise you all to visit and and see it. And you can see throughout the years how everything uh, changed. And um, it's it's very important to uh, commemorate um, this form of art that usually goes um unappreciated because it's already considered uh, against the law you know it's already a crime to to go and spray on walls anywhere so imagine in syria <laughs> to actually do that it's uh, it's a huge uh, it's a huge uh, act of courage i would say
0: yeah no, and it's it's interesting how you say that i mean of, of course they just destroyed the walls so they they graffiti over them so i mean it's great that we have now more digital memory activism, so thi- things are kind of how would you say in English? They're eternalized yeah. online, yeah, yeah exactly. so you can draw upon it still. Exactly, Which is great. Yeah, so <laughs> thank you for that. Um, and you, you did talk about kind of this this concept of time and how things evolve over time. So I wanted to bring it back to you, early, because uh, you've worked in both kind of current conflicts of so Pales- Palestine, uh, Israel, but you've also worked on past conflicts. Uh, and do you see kind of any significant parallels or differences between memory activism when there's an ongoing conflict and mm, maybe 10 years after a conflict has finished?
4: Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, a few thoughts about that. Uh, I think, at least from my work in the post-Yugoslav space, uh, we can no longer understand the work as the memory activism as related to the 1990s that can be done only on the national level or the local. I mean, there are circulations from the local <coughs> claims to the national and there are different struggles today. There's revisionism in the entire area, but it's different a little bit to do this activism in Bosnia, In Croatia, in Serbia, in Kosovo. Yet there is something also that connects the region very strongly. And since it's the post-war moment and the wars are through the narratives and the memories and their representations, but still I I very much see this uh, region as a region of memory activism and a region of memory. And that is enabled in some ways also given the post-war moment while, for example, in my work um, in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, given that it's an ongoing conflict, there's also often questions about who's gonna work together and whose struggle is going to be put forward. So the spaces for uh, uh, certain issues to be worked on together is shrinking has shrunk in many ways, uh, or completely disappeared, right? Yet there's still a a very interesting and important work being done. And uh, to connect it to hope, also to the lack of hope in the context of the present context of of the Israeli-Palestinian, the Israeli occupation, and which will only go (coughs) deeper, or uh, structures of apartheid, if you want, or, um, there's, ve- there, there's few spaces I was able to identify that gives hope in a joint action. For example, alternative, uh, one event that I studied as a joint, a Memorial Day commemorative event, which really became also a place of hope. So the search for hope through the action is, is uh, in, in both cases, something that I see evident to the need to, to do that, to be able to continue and do work. Um, I'm sure that comes up in in all of our work, so how do you uh, uh, move forward with that yeah so
0: okay these are my thoughts.
4: thank you thank you um, bring it back
0: to to you Pietra. sorry my mic is a bit and um so I mentioned in the beginning that uh, you work a lot on on sexual violence prevention and mm-hmm. um in terms of kind of women 's stories becoming marginalized that in particular, that kind of um, what do you say, war crime, mm-hmm. uh, tends to to not want to be touched. I mean, it's become more uh, talked about lately. But how how do you work to to give those um, stories space, or how do, how do the organisations you work with do that, especially when it when it comes to topics that people might not want to remember? Like do it's a bit of a conundrum there that like uh, should we should we make them remember just to kind of draw attention to this or should we leave some things to just be
1: well, that, I mean, of course, that could never be Kvina de Kvina's decision to make, you know, what stories should or should not be told. We can uh, only be a support for those who want to tell their stories, of whose organizations, you know, that want to work on this. Of course, we can work on it on a global level in making sure. Uh, but I think, you know, it's also important to note like why are these stories marginalized and i think that one of the primary reasons is that that is still and again not just in conflict effect areas but sexual violence is very closely connected (coughs) to shame and stigma uh for the the persons because it's not just women but many women that have been exposed uh to these uh abuses and this violence but also in a conflict setting for the men that could not protect their women having to do with the stereotypes. Uh, But I also think it's, you know, there are many uh, perpetrators of sexual violence in a conflict setting. So if you just bear with me, you know, if we look at just from our experience what we heard and not like verified data but when the conflict the military invasion of Ukraine uh, in February this year. So the first reports of violence uh, that we heard from were from Ukrainian Women's Organization who had shelters, that the increase of domestic violence, that that increased that was the very first signal of, of increased violence that we got it happens in all crises you know the twin pandemics of covid and violence against women so that was the first and i'd really want to stress that these are unverified you know this is what we heard you know we have not been able to verify the second i think if i remember correctly was that they talked about rapes that had happened in the shelters while the bombing was going on there were no russian soldiers in the shelter you know they then so the then there were Ukrainian men who had committed those uh, rapes. And then about parallel to that, the first reports about then more of Russian soldiers committing, and that's when it then comes, could be or could not be, if, if it's a war crime. But then we heard about the violence and sexual violence and how women and girls, uh, were abused and sextortion when they were on the road, when they were refugees as IDPs in Ukraine and then trying to cross the border into Europe and how they were very, very vulnerable there. And also from, you know, officials at the borders, which then in theory would be Ukrainians or Polish. And then they got into Europe and then there they were at risk for trafficking and then if we draw it all the way to Sweden we heard about men in Sweden sitting in cars in Ninashamn which was the port where many refugees came to. So it's like this trip of violence And then finally, you know, we had conversations with the Stockholm police because we could see that the number of Ukrainian women who were on uh, sites selling for sex and prostitution had increased. So that meant that there were men in Sweden who were also willing to pay to commit uh, sexual abuses of these women. So, I mean, I think this, in my head, illustrates that this, it's not, we, when we talk about, we need to separate, you know, there's the conflict related sexual violence that can be a war crime and they should be investigated and we need to stop that impunity. But there are also all of these other instances, which in my head is also, you know, it is conflict related sexual violence. It's just that the perpetrators uh, are different and they're in different countries. And I think that could also be a reason why it's not maybe so high on the agenda to bring light to this, because then we really, in Sweden as well, and in Europe, European Union, all of these instances really need to hold up the mirror and say, okay, how are we responsible, or how how should we have the responsibility to make sure that these women and girls, and also, you know, boys and men, weren't exposed uh, to this sexual violence and then finally <laughs> impunity i mean in all of these instances that i talk about the impunity is really really high in committing these crimes uh, and i mean this is things can go on and on and on about the importance of you know if if, if it's you can do it with no risk of being caught then, you know, it's not obviously from a government or from international institution seen as an important, you know, as a grave crime that it is.
0: Yeah, Yeah, you're right. Again, it's it's the complexity of an issue that kind of challenges the dominant narrative of, okay, so in Ukraine, we want the Russian soldiers to be kind of the perpetrators, but if you bring the whole issue to life, that automatically...
1: And there. they are perpetrated, yeah. so I'm not saying, I mean, that whole box <laughs> or sphere of problem is huge, you know, when it is being used as a tactics of war. Uh, but parallel to that, we need to be able to also see all of the other insta- instances when women uh, are exposed to violence because now of the conflict you know that has erupted and them being refugees and we all know how exposed you are in (coughs) refugee camps and in traditional you know if you don't have a man there to protect you and the concept of sextortion for example is when you are forced to trade with sexual favors for things, you know, that if it would have been a man, maybe they would have been able to bribe with money. But, you know, so sextortion as a concept is when you have to, you know, bribe someone with your your body or sexual favors.
0: Okay, yeah. Um, So, if I could just do a quick follow-up question. (laughs) (laughs) Or it'll be a quick answer. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, that's Um, what you're asking for. (laughs) (laughs) But if if we think about, okay, bringing it back to the topic of the the panel, memory activism. Um, do you work? Maybe you can't talk about the, the organizations you work with, but there the are other organizations that, that work kind of on a more activist level to bring these issues to light on sexual violence. Uh,
1: yes, with, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. There are organizations who are doing that, but as I started, I think it's so important when it comes to these topics that it has to be on their terms. Yeah. Uh, and it could never be, even though, you know, as an international women's rights or a peace building or saying well, you know, we want to shout it from the rooftop, you know, and make everyone react and really push the boundaries. But as always, and I think that has been uh, coming up throughout these two days as well, the the dignity and the respect of those who are and were affected and their families. I mean, that must always come in the first room. And then, you know, there are some, you know, so-called survivor uh, you know, activism, like Nadia Murad from Yazidi. I mean, she has decided that she wants to make her experience, you know, a way to, to really push for this and change the agenda. Uh, and then of course then you know we can support that but it has to be always in a in a dialogue but then of course we can be present as we talked about with the ICC and make sure that they are now our resources to document uh, the, the what the Russian soldiers what's going on and if it is you know ordered from the top or if it's just that you know they are looking the other way and just making it happen and where does the responsibility all of those issues
2: okay. Great, thank you. That's yes, of course. Um, on the on the subject of impunity, and I want to uh, uh, talk about it in the context of Syria and link it to the work that we do as well, because uh, I'm pretty sure that all of you here know uh, about the the crimes of the Syrian re- regime against its people. Uh, beside the bombing, beside the the kidnapping, the torture, the killing, there is also the the chemical massacres that took place, and. You actually have a huge part of the regime supporters that are still saying that this is a lie. This never happened, and there's this entire propaganda that this was funded by uh, Saudi Arabia. The videos are fake, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, when in the scope of our work, when we look at all the art that was created, all the murals, or the all the designs, all the uh, banners. Um, Everything that the paintings uh, portraying the the horrific events that happened or uh, videos that actually show a barrel bomb falling on on a, on an, uh, a neighborhood um, we we hope that at some point these can be used as proof uh, to seek accountability for whatever has happened or um like photographs, like the, the Caesar photographs that emerged a uh, few years back that are now being actively used in, uh, in uh, tribunals against, uh, like for war crimes against the Syrian regime. So uh, this impunity also tears down the spirit and the hope of the people because everything that they're creating, everything that they're doing, uh, the protests, like they, <coughs> they had such hope uh, with the beginning of the revolution because it was the first time that they actually felt they had a voice. As a context, uh, the Syrian regime is an extremely uh, oppressive dictatorship where no one had the right to say anything. Even if in their own homes, people were afraid to speak anything against the regime. so this explosion in expression, and especially arti- artistic expression, like people just discovered that they can paint, they discovered that they can make films, they discovered that they can sing, so everything needs to be documented, to be used later on for to achieve some sort of justice. And I just want to stress, because there's the word peace building in today's <laughs> panel, <laughs> I just want to stress that in the context of Syria, of course, all of this activism not, does not have the purpose of peace. It has the purpose of justice and accountability, which would then lead to peace, okay. so yeah.
0: Thank you, and that actually leads me to my next question, which is to you, because um, we've, we've talked about, I mean, the, the, you showed us the web website, which is an archive, so it tends to be quite like backwards looking things that art that has been done in the past, but I'm a bit curious of how how the situation is for artistic uh, activism in Syria today. Do people mostly draw on what has been done in the past and use that, so the memories of that, or are people still able to create, is there there platforms? Um,
2: Inside Syria right now, it's uh, getting harder and harder because even in some liberated areas uh, that were controlled by uh, the opposition or the people, um, a lot of, other extremist groups emerged, like the Nusra Front or uh, its battalions, or things related to uh, ISIS or Al Qaeda, etc. So they went from being able to uh, get rid of the oppression of the regime, and then they are now under the oppression of other groups. So it's getting harder, and it's very dangerous. Like the the kidnappings and the detainments don't o- only happen in regime-held uh, areas, but also. Uh, on the other side. So there are still very limited uh, places in Syria where people still have a voice. Um, and they, they do still create, um, they mostly create to com- commemorate uh, past events and to remind people that this actually happens, especially the massacres that took place. But they also rely on the diaspora uh outside of Syria, because there's a lot uh, of uh, you know the the immigration wave. Um, so the artists that were able to escape are the ones who are more able to voice uh, what's happening on the inside. and this also brings us back to the hashtags because um, they, they use hashtags like um, free them all, free the detainees, free them all, like break the siege, like to raise awareness online about what's happening inside because the people inside don't really have this uh, ability to create anymore.
0: Okay, thank you. thank you. I had some more questions, but we all only have 20 minutes left and I want to hear from you. I want to give some space for questions, so we have very A lot of interesting topics, we have some peace building, we have some art, some some digital commemoration, so, yes. Maybe, how do you feel about if we gather two questions and then we take, (laughs) yep? (laughs) Okay. So I want to make sure you're comfortable. (laughs) Yes, start there and then the back.
5: Thank you very much um, for this panel and the previous panel. Um, I I will link my intervention and question. I think the first thing I have is an alternative memory, which I also study, just call it vernacular memory. <laughs> but it's all that is non-official, not uh, defined or, you know, given power by the state that holds the part to make something formal, as far as I understand it. Um, so one of the challenges we have at least studying these things in the, um, the context I study in the Great Lakes region is the, the disappearance of hashtags, um, that those with power um, have now learned that this is a, a, a very important platform and they're organizing. I know one country, I want name, which has hired over a hundred um, military people to police the internet um, and bully people and, and, and all this kind of tactic uh, because of alternative memory specifically and the power of storytelling. So how, how do you think about that reality? And then the second one for uh, Syrian Kesson, and this has to do with also uh, Ukraine and Russia war and other wars that happen. When things are evolving quickly, the biggest challenge also journalists have at the moment is uh, what is fake news and what is real. You know, when a photo shows up, when a hashtag shows up, when an art piece shows up, to date it, you know, when you're archiving, for it to serve a purpose of justice later, which I think is actually peace, <laughs> peace, is making peace in the moment. Eh? Uh, uh, is, 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 how do you t- go with this challenge? Because that same thing, if a good lawyer finds out in the process that your piece was fake, or that it was wrongly dated, it kills the whole case, you know, it gives power to the, you know, so in this realm we are in of evidence, authentication, even me as a researcher is, is is a painful thing to do, right? So I really love this website. It's this actually what I'm up to in life, generally. This is like my dream. I will talk to you <laughs> after <laughs> for my next project. This is like, this is why I love this kind of forums. I got I I whispered to you, right? I said this is my dream. Uh, so <laughs> so you know, thanks for leaving it. Um, so how how do you authenticate um, evidence? Because war is happening. Uh, some of us that have done the wars, things move quickly. And power, and alternative power, and people who want also to influence how war ends, and foreign money, and imperial money, colonial money, all these things come to find these nice alternative things to mobilize them into something. How do you navigate that? Thank you.
0: Great. That was, yeah, There was two questions, but maybe we'll just, we'll collect one more. and
3: Uh, Thank you very much, all of you and the first panel as well. I have the feeling to be like a a plant growing up and growing up from since since yesterday uh, uh, noon. Um, I'm full of admiration for all all your actions and and, uh, thoughts. And I have a specific question for you, Olive, if I may. Um, It resonated very powerfully uh, when you said something about the circulation of hope and militants because it's it, it's not really f- fashionable anymore <laughs> to to think in terms of hope, and so I was wondering um, how do you what what reaction do do you get when you uh, bring this vocabulary when 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 you express uh, what you think your beliefs and and what you observe? But do you see or do you face resistance among the associations with whom you do work, or I don't know what. The, yeah do they share that thank you
0: thank you okay so we have three questions i think they're in total who wants to i think you were aimed at, at I don't. it takes a minute um,
4: yeah. thank you for the okay. questions uh, i'll start with david your Comment about the disappearance of hashtags. It's uh, indeed a very challenging one to uh, study in some places. Um, You can get arrested for your, uh, as an online uh, social media user, right? And there are different platforms, and we know of these cases. Uh, Yet, I think if we analyze these spaces as additional spaces for those political contestations, then we need to see what is happening there. As I said, for me, the, and I think for, as I understand the the activists themselves and the use of hashtags, the, it's it's another tactic, it's another practice to push forward a certain It might be part of a much broader campaign, or even project, right, if you want it. So that's how we need to see it, and it doesn't end there, and it's never meant to end there. And also, I think the online commemoration and online commemorative events, as we see them, are also, I mean, so the hashtag can be an entry point, but then it has additional, Life of its own that is created. For example, the White armband Day that I showed became another day on May 30th on the alternative civic calendar in the region and particularly in Bosnia and Herzegovina. There's different uh, rituals that are happening on online. So then it's no longer just the hashtag, right? It's it's other things that we need to uh, to trace and and so. Um, And again, just another thought about the online commemorations. We didn't have a chance to talk about it, but I think then when COVID came, it was also a very push forward of a lot of commemorative events and what happened to commemorations when COVID started because of the global lockdown. And so I've done uh, uh, some very interesting work on that. And then again, hashtags are there, but they're they're pushing forward a a whole new platform and practices even uh, to look at and to analyze. Um, uh, When it comes to hope, Valerie, your your question, it's it's very interesting because, for example, in Serbia for such a long time, the talk was about politics of disappointment, right? And that pushed me to, I mean, uh, there was disappointment from the end. Uh, the way the 90s ended. The way the post-Milošević era didn't bring the, the the catharsis never happened as people were hoping. Those who resisted the regime were disappointed. Uh, Those who resisted the wars were disappointed for uh, uh, the the impunity and all these issues. So that was very dominant. And I was, uh, and, and I think Anne Rigney and her work on memory and activism really, and the memory activism nexus, which brings the memory activism, memory of activism, and also memory in activism, shows additional possibilities, I would say. And I think in Serbia also after the assassination of Zoran Jinjic in 2003, it was just one event after the other. And so for me to understand how people still are continuing to do this work and not losing hope was was, uh, key to understanding their motivation and engagement. Um, What kind of uh, reactions when, and, and I will say just one more thing. I think in memory studies, more broadly, we are very deep in the end of things of studying conflict and memory, but very much uh, in 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 terms of trauma and the uh, the war and and the the the, the ne- all those events that ha- what's the life of them after and i think memory and activism also pushes in other directions beyond that a little bit so it's it's a, yeah we, there's a little bit more to say about it there may be uh, what kind of reactions it's it's uh, it's interesting i mean last week we had uh, uh, an event in belgrade the the, the book launch event and hope was the main discussion and i got very i got reassured when i saw that and there were a lot of the activists in the room the older the first what i call the first generation the and the second generation of activists those born after the wars or, or do not have living memories of that and and they found a way they spoke a lot about this question of hope and what keeps them going and and i think i got some very interesting uh, conversations going around these questions um, of hope. I still didn't get any complete uh, rejection of that. And again, in in the region itself, if we think about it as region of memory activism, I think the hope of also doing these commemorative events together and commemorative solidarity And very much the idea that in these actions you can go beyond ethnicity only. (laughs) And there's ways to imagine, it opens I think also spaces for imagining and imagination and bringing these practices also into activism.
0: Great, thank you. I think Rana.
2: So, about fake news and authentication and archiving, um, we are not a news site, so we don't follow scoops. So, if something (coughs) happens today and there's five uh, paintings or ten cartoons about it, doesn't mean that we have to document them right now uh we put them on the side, we check our sources, uh, you know, we we read articles and we don't really uh, base ourselves on news outlets that are known for propaganda, for example, Al Jazeera at a certain time. It was it was against the regime, but the articles they were writing were very propaganda uh, style and all that. So um, we can document today something uh, that was created in 2014 uh and have the right information about it and that would be better than documenting something that was created today just for the sake of, of having it on the website.
0: Great, thank you. So we I think we have time for one more round of questions. So I see I see a hand here and a hand here. I see three hands. Let's just get gather all all three questions. So sorry, it's like a triangle. Second round and up. It's okay, yeah. W- Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, Tim Williams from the (laughs) University of (laughs) the
6: Bundeswehr in Munich. Um, My question is um, regarding contestation and pushback. So, um, first of all, to Rana, maybe, can you in your documentation um, also sort of see how murals change? When something is painted and then there's pushback, things are painted over? And how do you deal with sort of the the ongoing, the living? nature of sort of s- street art and memorials and ha- how can you document that in a way which is also still uplifting to the sort of the original message even if there is it's including sort of pushback against it. And then to Oli, um, our hashtag, in in the work that you're looking at, do these hashtags sometimes get, sorry, do they sometimes get hijacked? <laughs> sorry, I forgot I was wearing a mask. Do they sometimes get hijacked by uh, counter-activists who are trying to undermine them? Because I, I know that in... Well, okay. I think the, clear, the question's clear. I don't need to give any examples. <laughs>
0: thank you. And then we have.
7: Yes. Thank you. Uh, my name is Annika Björkdahl, Lund University. Um, I have so many questions. I don't know where to start. Uh, but I think uh, I'll uh, ask a few questions first about the uh, the website and the archiving, and because I understand it's both. documenting street art but also documenting narratives Uh, and I wonder so do I understand it correctly that these it's sort of crowdsourced that people submit uh, photos and stories to you and then you check them or no (laughs) well (laughs) you you get a check well anyway I was just wondering where where the stories come from and how they reach you and, and so forth um, so that was one question and that sort of relates to to David's question in a way I think. <laughs> um, my other question relates to what Orly was talking about about um, the digital space uh, and how that relates to place like material spaces out here in, in the other world. Uh, and if we are to separate the digital space from other spaces. And I wonder what it means when you, I mean one of the consequences of coming together in commemoration practices is that you come together and it becomes sort of a collective agency that is expressed in these commemoration practices. But when you engaged in commemoration practices online, it's much more of an individual experience. Um, You're not there side by side in solidarity uh, and you're not appearing in public in the same sense um, so I wonder if that affects these commemoration practices and how they interact, the digital with the, the real one. I mean, I understand that the digital is real as well, but if you understand the material world. Yeah, it's hard to say. Um, and then I have another question about the feminist piece that Kvinna to Kvina is is working for. Uh, and there are actually two questions related to this. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, one is how I mean the Swedish foreign policy um, used to be a feminist foreign policy, but that seems to, you know, be f- fading out uh, in in some ways. It's not as apparent as it used to be. So is that affecting your work, trying to establish a feminist peace in, in these societies that you're working with, and also in general, there is this conservative backlash against women's rights. Uh, and the re-establishment, reinforcement of patriarchal norms. So is that affecting the ability to try to build a feminist peace? So thank you for all.
0: <laughs> thank <laughs> you. And I think James in the back had a question. Great, so we'll, we'll get that question and then I'll ask for, for short, quick okay. answers, if <laughs> possible. Okay.
6: Um, thank you very, very much. Uh, another great session. Um, I want to ask, kind of across the board, about preservation, uh, you know, th- the flash of hashtags and whether they disappear or not. In some senses, the presentation of websites, the maintenance of these things. Yeah, um, yeah, who's going to archive all of this? Where is the archive? Who who owns the archive? For whom is the archive of any of this? Because, it, you know, one of the things about focusing on these kind of discussions flashing around or the presentation of information is that it can all all too readily disappear if there's not somebody there to maintain it, who owns it and who uses it and who's going to look after it for the future.
0: Thank you. I think Rana will.
7: You you will archive everything. (laughs) you won't do that. Thank you. Yeah, who
2: wants to take the lead? Do you want to take the lead? Yeah, I have. I have very short answers, so I think oh, perfect, I'll start. Perfect. Go. Uh, so about the, uh, I think Tim, um, <coughs> the murals that get sabotaged or painted over. Uh, we document both if we're lucky to find both, uh, and we link them together. And uh, we uh, we write a small note uh, to <coughs> just. Uh, say or or, uh, inform everyone who's uh, looking at these mirrors that this was something else with the link to uh, the original or if we don't have the original, just to make sure that people know this is not the original, the original is under it, it was uh, sprayed over. And uh, just a quick note that um, everything that we document that has a certain context, uh, we we write a note under it just uh, because as time passes we forget why this was documented or what happened here. So we always uh, write a small note or explanation to uh, have a context of what happened so that people don't forget why this was uh, created. Um, For the second question, um, we, we search for everything ourselves online we have some known artists uh, who sometimes send us our work we have other known artists who want us to remove their work because they're now very famous and condescending <laughs> 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 um even though we're doing them a favor, like we're saving everything they're creating, but whatever, um, but, yeah <laughs> but it's mostly our, uh, rese- our own research online. We go uh, on Facebook pages, we go on websites, uh, and when it's, uh, when it's project specific, it's much e- easier. Um, like our daily work involves a broader search for anything that was created, but also when it's project specific, it's, uh, it's easier for us to know what to target or who to ask or which pages to go to. Uh, especially when it comes to the graffiti in Idlib, like there were s- certain pages online that used to document that, and we get into contact with the creator of these pages in case they have something that they did not publish. We can publish on the website. Uh, When it comes to the uh, detainees and disappeared project, also it's it's a more narrow search, so it's something that is concentrated on a certain project uh, or subject. But we, the team, does everything, mostly, (laughs) yeah. And we're just four people.
0: Uh, um, (laughs) Great, thank you. Do you wanna, go ahead, we have I.
1: I'll go real quick. I I, I wouldn't say that the feminist foreign policy is fading out. I would say that they threw it out uh, with a bang. Uh, And they said, I mean, in Swedish, we have the concept of signalpolitik, uh, like politics of making a point. And they said that that's why they didn't want to call it a feminist foreign policy. But they were going to keep the content. So I would say that In my world, that's definitely politics of making a point, but the point being is that we are not feminists. We're not going to stand up for women's rights uh, everywhere in the world and make sure that they are represented and that they are resourced and that they are heard. And when it comes to the backlash uh, on women's rights, it's definitely... Uh, affecting uh, our partner's work and also you know kvinna work as being part in a feminist women's rights movement and it's everything from roe v wade in the us to the turkey throwing out the istanbul convention to the anti-gender movements growing in the rhetoric uh, but i think that you know makes our case stronger Uh, to continue this struggle and it'll take one minute but I think just in for me to round up this whole the two days and also the importance of amplifying voices and hearing voices we had worked you know the the talibans going back into Afghanistan happened last fall so it'd been about a half a year when the crisis in Ukraine happened. And we had, you know, worked a lot on the, with the Afghan women and seeing how we're not present in Afghanistan when trying to support. So then the Afghan women, uh, and this also relates, I think, to hope, because if there's anywhere in the world where you will find politics of hope and actions for hope, I think it's within the women's movement. So the Afghan women wrote a letter to the Ukrainian women. It's really short. As Afghan women we have faced the horrors of war that now confront our Ukrainian sisters as women they will pay the price of war fear violence migration poverty and a crisis of identity and they also will be expected to be pillars of support and problem solvers for their families as they weather this crisis it's a heavy burden to bear we're not in better position Ukrainian women but we do offer our moral support to them And more than that, we commit to amplifying their voices. And I think that was such an, important thing in saying from the women in Afghanistan to reaching out that hand and being that support network even though they obviously were not in the best position themselves. And I think that connected to memories and whose voices are being heard. And that should be a lesson learned for international community. If the Afghan women are ready to amplify their voices, then, you know, well, then so should we.
4: I think we should end with that statement. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure you <laughs> want to talk about hashtags? No, thank you for this. It was good. Yeah, but I uh, very briefly about the three questions I got. Uh, I didn't see the. I like the hijacking of hashtags. I didn't. Uh, come across it. Of course, I saw the ridiculing, the inter, the interaction, the f- spinning, right, through hashtags is it, part of mnemonic battles, right? Um, but just to give an example, there was a campaign for Kosovo to enter UNESCO, for those of us who maybe follow this and remember. So the hashtag was Kosovo in UNESCO, very fast. They were ne Kosovo in UNESCO, no. and. These were fighting with each other. So it wasn't hi- hijacking, but it was very interesting to follow. Very quickly, Annika, to your question. Yes, I ask this question a lot, actually. What is the difference for the initiators of events, but also participants? Uh, I would say uh, one event that I studied I'm, I'm st- still not done completely, but the joint uh, Israeli-Palestinian Memorial Day service Uh, First, I I learned that a lot of people joined and otherwise they would not go live. Palestinians from Gaza who joined, Palestinians from Ramallah, otherwise they would be outcasted if they would go to a joint event. You can enter online with no name, no identity, right? It's very interesting and it grew significantly from physically 10,000 people attending to uh, the first year because of covid when it went online to 200,000 people that's you it's that needs to be looked at and also it didn't end just in you it has participatory elements um, so for example after the event itself people were invited to join zoom rooms and speak to each other and again you can turn on your camera you can Key, key, uh, leave it off. So I think there's new practices there. But yes, most people said that the warmth of on-site, what the on-site event itself and the human connection interaction will not will never be the same. And. Um, And lastly, to James' question, yeah, I think nowadays we think of a span of 15 years about that some of the digital archives will remain, right? And when we began to speak about the digital turn or the connective turn in memory studies, the archiving was key uh, uh, discussion, I would say. But I think um, what, so will it disappear? Yeah, well, one practice I saw, for example, in a um, project of the Youth Initiative for Human Rights in Serbia when they use the hashtag, I, it did happen, yes, to speak about certain war crimes otherwise uh, completely silenced. But, so they have the platform and they manage it and they will have to continue and, and maintain it, yet they have created a whole educational kit for that, for their work, so it doesn't It's no longer just online. It's also been the idea is to continue and use the materials, the data that they put there, the evidence to some of their claims uh, in their educational work. So I I think this is one thing to trace, kind of, okay, there is the website, there's oral history projects on like the Itza memorial and others, Uh, but what happens after that and will, is there life of that after? and there is in some, in some ways. It just requires slower memory studies to trace this as well, in a way.
0: Okay, thank you. Thank you so much for your thoughts, and, and please join me in giving my three panelists an applause. <laughs> uh, so I, uh, I know we went over time a bit, and I'm sorry about that. Uh, but. Annika Björklund, professor at Lund University, is gonna give some concluding remarks now. And I've been told that uh, they will not run for half an hour, so hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll take, we took some of your time basically. <laughs> so welcome, and we'll give you the floor.